Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagAndBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, and the commonalities of successful people. Today's edition of Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy is an insightful, fun, and entertaining interview with the one-time owner of Community Bakery in Little Rock, Joe Fox. Joe is no longer the owner of Community Bakery. He's the landlord for the bakery. But the new owners are John and Julie Brandenburger. And their story by itself is an interesting one. They bought Community Bakery from Joe Fox in 2018. But today's interview is an interesting look back to find out what inspired Joe Fox to turn Community Bakery into the cornerstone of the South on Main neighborhood that it still is today. My guest today is probably the most educated restaurateur I've ever known, Mr. Joe Fox, owner of Community Bakery in Little Rock, Arkansas, also has a degree in engineering technology, economics, and an MBA from Harvard. Joe's career story is not like any I've ever heard. From what I can tell, he did not have a burning desire to cook serve or commune with others his inspiration for starting his coffee shop was simply to create a place where he could sit and read the sunday new york times this creative and risky business venture to to open an upscale coffee shop on main street in little rock's distressed downtown neighborhood has been hugely successful so much so that fox has since opened another community bakery in west little rock He's got lots of business ventures. We're going to hear lots of them. He's not just a restaurateur. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table the intelligent, creative businessman and a restaurateur, Mr. Joe Fox. Thank you, Carrie. <laughs> you went to school at UA Little Rock and got a degree in engineering technology. You went to Stanford University and studied economics. You went to Harvard and got an MBA, Master of Business uh, Administration. Administration. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> Who is Joe Fox? <laughs> uh, I'd have to think about that for a while before I could answer. I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm uh, just uh, somebody who likes to operate businesses, I guess, small businesses for the most part. I uh, got used to doing that type of activity when I was young and just kept on. In fact, there's an irony to the fact that uh, at this point in my life I'm selling donuts and newspapers and I I did that when I was a kid. <laughs> you did? Where'd you, you grew up in Missouri. Grew up in St. Louis, uh, sold newspapers on the street corner. Uh, uh, the day Kennedy was shot, I was out there selling uh, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch uh, just a few doors, a block from my house. And I remember, uh, you know, uh, calling out the way we used to hear in the TV shows at that time. I said, they actually issued an extra edition that day. And, and St. Louis Post-Dispatch was an afternoon newspaper, and it had a two-star edition, a three-star edition. But on the day that uh, the assassination occurred, they put out an extra edition. And sure enough, it said extra up in the upper right-hand corner of the uh, newspaper. And I was out there uh, saying, extra, extra, read all about it. Kennedy assassinated in Dallas. So. Anyway, I was selling newspapers then. I'm selling the New, uh, New York Times and the Wall Street Journal still today. Uh, and on the donut side, I guess uh, when I was in high school, I kind of made a bit of a name for myself uh, selling donuts uh, to uh, raise money for our junior high school prom. And my 
innovation that enabled us to sell so many more donuts than any previous class and raise so much more money for our prom was that we decided we could sell donuts on credit to our uh, uh, lower classmen, uh, the other kids in the school. This is a six-year school. It's seventh graders through uh, seniors. So there are six classes and uh, we sold donuts to everybody in the school. And uh, But if they didn't have enough change in their pocket, they could sign a little slip that said, I, uh, I promised to pay the junior class of... Uh, St. Louis Priory, uh, and there was a blank. They could fill in however much they wanted and uh, buy as many donuts as they wanted. And uh, people took advantage of that, and uh, uh, we sold a hell of a lot more donuts. Of course, then we had to collect. So uh, we uh, we sent the burly football players around to uh, <laughs> <laughs> to collect as necessary. Uh, and, you know, there were, there were some students who were awfully generous, and they'd buy donuts for all their friends, and they— Know, racked up some pretty big bills, and that helped us, uh, you know, have a, a grand, uh, what do you call it, a grand uh, junior prom. Mm-hmm. In fact, we uh, we brought in an out-of-town music act and paid way too much money and probably wasn't a good use of money, but it's what we did. Sounds mm-hmm. like a great story, though. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was fun. You were very entrepreneurial. Are uh, your parents? Go ahead. Are your parents? Uh, well, my parents passed away, of course, but uh, were no, your parents? No, they they were not. Uh, my dad was a banker. My mother took care of us, seven kids. <laughs> so yeah, seven kids. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so you're from Missouri, and I guess they all live there. Uh, well, yeah, that's an, it's a bit of a story as well. I, I you know I, I first came to Arkansas when I was like 18, and I I floated across the border on the uh, Eleven Point River, uh, but. Uh, turns out, actually, that my dad was born here in Little Rock. My mother was born in Jonesboro. And my grandfather was born in Poplar Bluff. But I had never been to Arkansas, and my siblings hadn't really either. And What did you call it, the Eleven Point River? Uh, where did I what? What did you call that? Yeah, the Eleven Point River. It, uh, it, it starts in the Missouri Ozarks, but it uh, f- flows into uh, Arkansas. And uh, it was one of when, – when I grew up in St. Louis uh, in the uh, – the, the summers we would like to go to the Ozarks and take float trips because to get away from the heat and have a nice, nice weekend and all. So, uh, uh, you were time, 18. One, yeah, that was, but that's not how you really got to Arkansas before yeah, the show started. Yeah, yeah. You were kind of telling mm-hmm. me how you got to Arkansas. Yeah. Okay. So and, yeah, when I got out of business school, I wanted to do something other than work for corporate America. So I, uh, uh, actually uh, came to, our, to Little Rock to work for Acorn. And it was pretty much straight out of business school. And, uh, uh, you know, I came down, visited with Wade uh, Christmas, my second year of business school and agreed to, actually, I didn't agree at that time to come back. I looked at some other corporate jobs and decided not to go that route and came here. That's so, Wade Rathke, who yeah. still manages Acorn, I think. Or is, or well, is Acorn? He, I guess Acorn National is not in existence by that name, but Acorn International is there and Wade is, he's very he, he, he does run that and uh, he's still doing today what he was doing, whatever that, how many years ago was that? 77, that's 40 years ago. I don't think people realize that the A and A course stands for Arkansas. Uh, it, it did, did originally, yeah, and then uh, the A and Acorn originally was Arkansas Community Organizations for Reform Now and then when it expanded to other states, uh, the A it became the word that was the A was for Association of Community Organizations for Reform. Now, mm-hmm. so that's you that's were part. Where. You were 
part of something that was very important at the time. Did you feel like it? Well, you know, we back in the day there we're trying to we're, a lot of us were trying to figure out how we could make a difference, how we could affect social change. And uh, ACORN was probably the premier community organizing entity in the country. By the time I came to work for it, you know, it was already in uh, t- more than 20 other states. So it, it had expanded way beyond Arkansas at that point in time. And honestly, when I was in business school, uh, I, uh, uh, you know, I needed to kind of keep my perspective on the weekends. I'd uh, read some alternative press. And I remember uh, reading about Acorn and, uh, and thinking, I, I need to check that organization out. Mm-hmm. So I did. So I think a lot of people come out of high school and they don't know what they're going to be. And when I was reading your uh, resume and bio, you, you, like I said, you went to school at the University of Arkansas, but you're from Missouri. Then you went to... You know, I didn't go to the University of Arkansas until I was in my 40s and early 50s. Oh. That, that was a midlife, uh, uh, midlife endeavor. In fact, I like to say that, you know, from my midlife crisis, instead of getting a uh, new wife or a new car, I got a new degree. (laughs) It's probably a lot healthier and cheaper. Even though it's expensive, it's still cheaper. (laughs) Yeah, in the long run. Yes, that's true. (laughs) So, and then you went to Stanford. Yeah, that was where I went out of high school. Oh, you went to Stanford out of high school. And it was economics. And then you ended up going to Harvard for business, which isn't too much of a stretch. Well, so what, I mean, when I studied economics, uh, you know, I eventually figured out that economics didn't, really help you understand how to run a business or how businesses ran it under it. You know, there were supply and demand curves, but that wasn't really, I knew that businesses didn't really kind of make decisions that way. So I thought, well, I think I need to go off to business school to really kind of learn the, uh, the guts of it. And so that's what so I you're did. in Boston yep. and you get out of Harvard and you stay in Boston. No, I came here, came here straight out of business school. I, uh, piled everything I had into a van and drove to Arkansas. To work for Acorn. That's right. Yeah. And when you got here, you, was there a New York Times to read? Uh, no. So, uh, you know, I got here in 77, but uh, I was only here really for about uh, six or seven months. Uh, but uh, I took a liking to the Little Rock and wanted to come back. So uh, I eventually did. But that was four or five years later. It was at that time that I thought, well, I like to read the New York Times. I... I can't get it here on the day of publication. There was one newsstand down on Main Street that uh, carried the Sunday New York Times, but it came in by bus and it got here on Wednesday or Thursday, you know, three or four days after the date of publication. And I said, we got to be able to do better than this. So I uh, dug into it and uh, uh, eventually figured out that the only way I could get it here on Sunday was to become a distributor. So uh, that's what I did. So we have the New York Times in Little Rock now because of you. Uh, yeah, it would have gotten here eventually without me, but it got here in 77, no, excuse me, in 83, no, 82, 82 because of me. Uh, and Well, I had a lot of help with it too. My wife was certainly, I guess I have to tell this story. Uh, so we, uh, we started bringing the New York Times in by playing on Sunday, the weekend before our wedding. And she's going to kill you. I can what, tell. What that meant was that on our wedding night, <laughs> in, in the middle of the night, my wife Leah was up in our hotel room, uh, 
organizing the delivery routes that our friends agreed that our friends then delivered the papers on the next morning. So uh, I'm afraid I was sleeping and she was uh, <laughs> she's rolling up papers. She, she, she was, and well, stacks. the papers weren't there. Yeah, she she was she was just organizing the index cards, uh, what order the routes were going to be delivered and dividing them into routes. So uh, it was all pretty uh New at that time, and we probably only had, you know, I don't know, 50 or 60 uh, subscribers at that point. Uh, and uh, how'd you get your subscribers? Did you go out and sell them door to door, put an ad in the paper? What'd you do to get it well, to know that you had a that you had an audience for it? Okay, so when I got this idea that I would have to, the only way I could get it here was to be a distributor. I started trying to figure out how am I going to get enough subscribers to right. persuade the New York Times to ship them here for us. Yeah, because they were gonna they paid the bill for the the plane. We didn't, uh, oh. but they had all the logistics arranged and everything like that because they were already doing that in various other uh, other areas. We originally got our papers shipped, uh, flown out of Chicago, and that went on for years. Uh, well, year, a couple of years. Anyway, long and short of it, uh, the uh, I started uh, asking all my friends, well, "Who do you know that might be interested in uh, reading the New York Times?" and uh, they would give me names. I'd, I'd get on the phone and call those names, and I'd ask everybody that I spoke to if they had any other names they could recommend. And by that kind of phone tree, you know, going from one caller to the next, I mean, one one potential subscriber to the next, we got up to, uh, I don't know how many the first week or two, maybe, as I say, 50 or 60, but we eventually got up to a couple hundred. But uh, that was, uh, that's how we got started. How many do you, how many do you distribute today? Well, today, uh, the Sunday New York Times, we probably distribute about 700, uh, 700 to 800. But that's that's not just subscribers. That's uh, we take them to all the Starbucks. We take them to other uh, dealers and whatever. And uh, truth of the matter is that uh, so I started that in 82. In the mid 90s, the New York Times uh, decided that it was ready to add a little rock to its kind of national distribution even though, of course, we were already distributing here uh, and we were, you know, one of their contract, one of their distributors, but they didn't they didn't think they actually had distribution here. So they uh, but they added it to the uh, to their national distribution. And, you know, we we contracted with them to deliver all those papers. So of those 700, uh, let's see, uh, I, I would I would guess that maybe 600 or five to 600 are subscription copies. But only 100 of those actually subscribe directly through us. The other four or 500 subscribe through the New York Times. But we deliver them all. I was going to say, but you probably mm-hmm. deliver them, don't we you? We deliver them all. They're all integrated. That doesn't sound like route. a lot of money maker. That sounds more like a labor of love. <laughs> well, it was it was a little bit of that. And you asked kind of how did we expand the uh, subscription roles. One of the things that I recall doing uh, was uh, so in that first year or two, uh, I'd go out jogging regularly. Uh I remember three or four times a week, but I just pick a neighborhood that uh, I thought might be uh, might have enough prospects for more New York Times subscribers. And I'd uh, just leave flyers on their uh, front doorstep. But I tried to get out there early enough that their that their Arkansas Gazette was still there. And I just slide the flyer underneath their Arkansas Gazette. So when they picked up their paper in the morning, they'd see that they could also subscribe to the New York Times if they wished. So. That's target marketing right there. If they've got a newspaper, they like newspapers. <laughs> Smart. All right, this is a great place to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Joe Fox, owner of Community Bakery in Little Rock, Arkansas. We'll hear the story of how he came to own the coffee shop 
and get some management tips on how he has made it hugely successful. We'll be back after the break. Today's edition of Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy is an insightful, fun, and entertaining interview with the one-time owner of Community Bakery in Little Rock, Joe Fox. Joe is no longer the owner of Community Bakery. He's the landlord for the bakery. But the new owners are John and Julie Brandenburger. They bought Community Bakery from Joe Fox in 2018. But today's interview is an interesting look back to find out what inspired Joe Fox to turn Community Bakery into the cornerstone of the South on Main neighborhood that it still is today. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagAndBanner.com. Over 40 years ago, with only $400, Carrie founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. During the last four decades, the business has grown and changed, starting from door-to-door sales, then telemarketing, to mail order and catalog sales. And now, flagandbanner.com relies heavily on the internet and live chats with customers all over the world. Over this time, Carrie's business and leadership knowledge has grown. As early as 2004, she began sharing her knowledge in her weekly blog, in 2009, she founded the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland Ballroom, and in 2014, Brave Magazine, a biannual publication. Today, she has branched out into podcasts, Facebook live stream, and YouTube videos of this radio show. Each week, you'll hear candid conversations between her and her guests about real-world experiences on a variety of businesses and topics that we hope you'll find interesting and inspiring. Stay up to date by joining FlagandBanner.com's mailing list. You'll receive our Water Cooler Weekly e-blast that notifies you of our upcoming guests, happenings at Dreamland Ballroom, sales at FlagandBanner.com, access to Brave Magazine articles, and Carrie's current blog post. All that in one weekly email. Or you may simply like FlagandBanner.com's Facebook page for timely notifications. Telling American-made stories, selling American-made flags. The FlagandBanner.com. Back to you, Carrie. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Mr. Joe Fox, owner of Community Bakery in Little Rock, Arkansas. Before the break, we talked about how Joe, a Missourian, I think that's the way you say it, came to live in Little Rock, Arkansas by following Acorn, that he was a, I want to think, I think of you as a, as a, as a hippie trying to save the world. That was kind of that era. What would you call us back then? We we had those aspirations. We did have those mm-hmm. aspirations. You used to drive my mother nuts that I didn't shave my legs. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't do that today for anything, but back then we did. Um, so, and then we talked about how he went to Harvard, how he was born an entrepreneur and sold donuts for his junior high prom. Some people are just born and cannot stop creating businesses. And something at, before the break that you said that I really relate to is you love creating small businesses. I just almost have to sit on my hands to not go bankrupt because I want to start new businesses all the time. I see opportunities. I want to start them and I have to remind myself I don't have enough time and energy to do all that. So we're going to talk about you living in Boston, going to school at Harvard. You began a weekly habit of reading the Sunday New York Times. And when you came to Little Rock in 1985, I, came, I came here to stay at 81. 81, 81. Yeah. that you had no bagels and coffee shops and nobody carried <laughs> right. the Sunday edition of the Times and that this inspired you to become a distributor and ultimately led to you buying the community bakery. So where do you want to start? Oh, my. You uh, start. Let's talk about the original community bakery. It was okay. in Rose City. You didn't start yeah. it from scratch. You bought uh, it. That's correct. Yeah. So uh, 
Community Bakery started in Rose City in uh, 1947, as best I can research at the Arkansas Studies Center or whatever. And uh, the, uh, it was there for about five years. It moved to uh, Main Street here in uh, uh, South Main here in Little Rock in 1952. And uh, uh, that was the year I was born, by the way. Uh, so anyway, uh, it was... Uh, uh, Ralph Henson started it. Uh, I'm told now with a, with a partner, but I guess he bought his partner out very early. But time it got to Little Rock, it was Ralph by himself, and uh, uh, he uh, he put it in, in in the in the building at 1318 Main. I remember that address quite well, of course. But that's where Raduno's Pizza is today. Oh. And uh, so uh, when I bought the business, that's where it was, and I operated it there for. Uh, 10 years uh, as a tenant uh, and then bought the property down the street a block away and redeveloped that property and moved it down there uh, in 1993. Uh, so I bought it in 83, moved there in 93. And it was at that point that it became a, uh, you know, a, a bakery cafe and dessert coffee house, which was really what my original aspiration was. But, you know, uh, How did you first decide that that was the one? How did that coming to buy that coffee shop come to pass? Well, it wasn't a coffee shop when I bought it. It was just a, a diner. A, it was a hole. It wasn't even that. It was just a hole in the wall retail bakery. If you went into the uh, to the customer area, it was uh, no bigger than this room we're in right now, honestly. And uh, it had th three or four or five display cases, and uh, that was it. And you're like, uh, I think I'll buy this. It, no, no I, di I didn't do that. So what what happened was I. Uh, uh, I actually, uh, when I came to Little Rock, I wanted to uh, you know, look for a business to uh, buy or start up or be, join in as a partner. And I was kind of predisposed towards something in manufacturing or fabricating. That was just kind of my interest. And I had made an offer on a, uh, on a small fabricating business I thought I'd like to operate. And, uh, but while I was waiting for kind of a reply on my offer, I went down and uh, uh, went to community bakery and asked to speak to the owner and asked if we could rent the facilities after hours to uh, bake desserts for a coffee house that some friends wanted to uh, start, you know, the one with the New York times and the bagels. <laughs> and uh, you know, she told me her name was Agnes Bargle. Now she, she was the uh, second owner of the bakery, Ralph Henson. She was Ralph Henson, the original uh, person who started community bakery. She was oh. Ralph Henson's uh, uh, head decorator and he sold it to her in, uh, oh, the mid-70s, 76, 77, thereabouts. So here I am in 83, and I uh, go in and, uh, and talk to her. And she told me, uh, well, there wasn't really any after hours when they weren't there. <laughs> and I thought that was just a put off. But she, uh, I learned later, she was telling the truth. <laughs> they were baking back there, yeah. Well, not just baking. She, uh, that's a story in itself. I might get to that in a second. But anyway, she... Uh, she said, uh, what do you want to do? And I told her we just, you know, how we wanted to bake desserts because we had a spot in mind where we want to do this coffee house, but the fire regs wouldn't let any uh, cooking happen on premises. So we needed an offsite place to, uh, to bake. And she said, well, that won't really work, but why don't you just buy the bakery from me? And I said, well, I didn't really have that in mind, but I didn't say no. And I went away. And when the other uh, deal didn't work out, I came back and Agnes and I worked out something and uh, uh, and I ended up buying it. And uh, 
persuaded her to stay on because uh, uh she, uh, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about the bakery business. I certainly didn't know anything about decorating cakes. And she was, as I say, Ralph Henson's head decorator. And uh, she, uh, she, she was an expert at that. I, I venture to say she was the best in uh, central Arkansas at that time. But uh, in any event, uh, she wouldn't commit to staying for more than a, a few months. I think she, uh, I think she stayed six months because it took me that long to pay her off the balance of what I what I owed her. That was part of our original deal. But then she eventually stayed with me 25 years. <laughs> and, oh, and she, thank God. And she worked, uh, you know, she worked at the bakery until she was in her 80s. Uh, wow. And I've never seen anybody with with more stamina than uh, Agnes. But anyway, anyway, that, that was uh, that was uh, a bit of a story. Uh, well, I'll, I'll just make one reference to Agnes and her stamina, although if any of her relatives are listening, they probably uh, shoot me for telling this story. But uh, <laughs> Oh, good. That's my so, favorite kind of story. <laughs> so, so Agnes would, uh, you know, when I bought the bakery, it was a pretty thin operation. There were only seven employees and three of them were bakers, two of them were decorators, and two of them worked the front counter, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and that was it. But anyway, Agnes, the second decorator was her daughter. But Agnes on the weekends was so busy decorating cakes that she would, on Friday night, she might work, you know, until uh, at, way after closing, the bakery closed at six o'clock in the evening at that time, but she'd wait, work until uh, uh, 10 o'clock. Then she'd go, uh, she had a cot in the business in a uh, closet under a stairwell. I was afraid and, you were going to say that. And she'd go in there and she'd get four or five, three, a couple hours of sleep before she would then let her bakers in at 2.30 in the morning to come uh -huh. in and start baking cake all over again. So she really was there around the clock sometimes. That's a that's a different kind of mentality than we have today. She, she as I say, she had more stamina. She had more commitment. She was the hardest working person I've ever run into. Well, it is an abs. People don't, I don't think some people realize what a, how lucky we are that we can work anywhere, anytime we want to, because people are like, oh, I've got to go to work. And it's like, really, you should be like, oh boy, I'm so glad I live in a country where I can work at any job I want to work at. Yeah. Well, My mm -hmm. aunt lived under the stairs in my grandmother's house. She was a school teacher. I don't think that was as, um, you know, it was, it was probably, she was probably from the depression era. Yeah. Well, that's, 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 that's a great that, that, story. That's a, that's a committed teacher, though. <laughs> it's like Harry Potter. Uh, so what are the terms of the sale when you sold that back then? I guess you just paid cash out. You said it took six months to pay her out? Well, I... You know, I, I, I paid 80% in cash up front and the other 20% I paid her out over six months. But really, that was just an effort to ensure she'd stick around, stick with me for a little and bit. And that's a point I wanted to point And that's something I wanted to point out, that it's, that it's probably always good if you're going to buy a business mm -hmm. to pay half of it, let's say, up front. And then the other half over terms over the next couple of years, it mm -hmm. it, it creates tax deferred uh, uh it becomes an expense instead of an asset on your balance sheet. And also it ensures that they stay. I think that's probably true. In fact, that may happen to me when I try to pass the community bakery on to uh, my uh, successor. So I want to let our people that kind of want to know what it's like to run a business. Is there anything that you would say about your coffee shop, if somebody's wanting to go out and maybe start one. I mean, when you did it, there weren't, wasn't a lot of competition. Is the competition today affecting what you do? And would you start one today? Oh, that's a good question, actually. Uh, the, the competition has 
always affected us, but it, it's, of course, gotten more and more intense uh, over the years. And uh, I'm not sure I'd be brave enough to start a, uh, uh, a coffee shop these days, but there are a number of people out there have done it just in the last year or two. You got three, you three, or, three or four new ones downtown. I, uh, I give them a lot of credit for uh, to stepping out and doing that. You think you'd buy a franchise? I wouldn't. That's just... Why not? Uh, I'm too much of a kind of want to do things my way. Uh, that w- that was one of the beauties of having my own business was that I could decide I wanted to do something. I could implement it the next day. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that that's something that's the most fun about owning your own business. I you, think so too. You, you can come up with creative uh, uh, policies, procedures, uh, methods, uh, marketing, you name it, and you can implement it as soon as you can put the time and energy into it. And that's, uh, I, I've always loved that about the, the bakery. And of course, I, you know, I, I came with a lot of ideas. So I probably, I designed a lot of systems that were way too complicated and way more extensive than need be for the size operation I had. But it was just who I was. My wife will constantly tell you that I dumb it down. That I, I you do need things. To, you need, simplify. I make things way too complicated. Yeah, yeah I simplify. think sometimes. Yeah. I think we all did that when we were young entrepreneurs, though. I think we yeah. all wanted to we wanted to do things harder. The best example of that in the bakery is just the 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 breadth of our product line. We do so much. We make so much different stuff, and that that creates a very challenging production environment. But at the same time, it also buys us a little insurance uh, from in the competitive marketplace because, uh, you know, in the years when all these new operations would come up, let's say at one point it was new bagel shops, uh, you know, new cupcake shops, uh, new uh, uh, cake shops, decorating enterprises, whatever uh, they can all they all would kind of take a bite out of our pie, but they didn't put us out of business. Because mm, you're so diverse. We're Breakfast, so diverse lunch, dinner, to go, everything. Right. But the, as I say, the challenge with that, though, is uh, is on the production side of things because we produce, you know, 100 different products a day and just trying to produce uh, an appropriate quantity and maintaining the quality and, uh, you know. Yeah, and it's perishable. Today's edition of Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy is an insightful, fun, and entertaining interview with the one-time owner of Community Bakery in Little Rock, Joe Fox. Joe is no longer the owner of Community Bakery. He's the landlord for the bakery. But the new owners are John and Julie Brandenburger, and their story by itself is an interesting one. They bought Community Bakery from Joe Fox in 2018, but today's interview is an interesting look back to find out what inspired Joe Fox to turn Community Bakery into the cornerstone of the South on Main neighborhood that it still is today. You are listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Mr. Joe Fox, owner of Community Bakery in Little Rock, Arkansas, and we're having a great discussion. We've talked about how he got to Little Rock. He's a Missourian. We've talked about how he started his business, and now we want to talk about the nuts and bolts of running Community Bakery. He has 65 employees. They're open seven days a week. How many hours a day? Ooh, well, we're open from, what is that, 6 a.m. to 8 p.m., so that's uh, 14 hours a day. 14 hours days. a day. And an, hour, an hour later on Friday and Saturday till 9 p.m. And, <laughs> and, and, and 
and you have perishable products. Yeah. So in today's world with low profit margins, don't you feel like we have low profit margins today? Absolutely. Well, yes. The, Every- the bakery business has been a very low profit uh, enterprise from the very start. And that's for that reason, we've had to depend on big volume. So we our business model doesn't work with moderate volume. We have to have a large volume of uh, product. And that's why you have I, to be open all the time. Well, that's part of it, I guess. Yes. Because you have perishable. Well, I was thinking about that. I thought, well, if I had perishables, I would not want to have a day off where they sat around. That's a good point. Yeah. And I, it's been I, so long since I wasn't open seven days a week and I've forgotten that. You <laughs> forgot why you did that. And I think about that with some of these small grocery stores that are open six days a week. I think, golly, they must lose a lot of inventory on that day. And everybody wants something all the time. So you really have to be open all the time. I was reminded of that perishable, uh, you know, cookies. Uh, we have we have a lot of product that's one day shelf life, all of our breakfast stuff. And, sure. and we have to sell it, you know, for reduced price day old the next day if we sell it at all. Uh, some of it we just have to discard. Uh, we give to the stew pot or we give it to the uh, uh, one of the other uh, uh, home feed the homeless uh, endeavors. Uh-huh. But uh Anyway, uh, over Christmas, uh, we shut for down for a few days for some repairs. And whenever we do that, you know, we basically have to clear the shelves. And that's uh, that is a big deal because it's it's almost impossible to run. Out do of you know how much inventory you have on the shelf at any one time? Dollar wise? Uh, I don't think of, I don't. You know. don't want to know. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you work all day long? Do, do your, are your bakers there all the time? Uh, what no. time do they start in the morning? Well, they, they actually, they uh, they come in in staggered shifts. The first ones come in around 7 or 8 in the evening, and the uh, last ones come in at, well, supposed to come in at 4 or 5 in the morning. Some of them don't get there until 9 or 10 in the morning. But be that as it may, there's somebody baking probably from uh, 7 or 8 p.m. until uh, 3 or 4 p.m. Uh, 7 or 8 p.m. one day till 3 or 4 p.m. the following day. <laughs> so there's only a few hours when there isn't someone actually in the baking department. And that, and to get your mind around that, it's dinner time. It's That's cocktail right, yeah. hour and dinner time. Everybody goes home. But all night long, there's somebody in the kitchen baking. Uh, yes. And you yeah. have apartments out back. So you're well, a we, landlord, too. That's true. Uh, we, we only have two apartments, and they're they're on the third floor of our... Uh, are they our your baker's back, apartments? Uh, they are not. Although uh, <laughs> one, one of our staff recently looked at one of the vacant apartments and uh, said she'd love to move in there. She could pers- persuade her fiancé, but not quite yet. That'd be a good idea. <laughs> but uh, So do you, know. you, and do you watch... Your food costs every day. Do you look at your financial? You're an MBA guy. How often yeah. do you look at your financials? Well, I I I I have a weekly uh, sheet that I keep track that, that tells me almost everything I need to know. One on one, a customer report, and it has to do with uh, sales revenue and uh, payroll costs. See, uh, payroll costs are by far our biggest cost. They amount to about fifty-two cents of every dollar. So that's incredibly labor-intensive. And then the ingredients wow. costs are another, you know, twenty to twenty-three percent of our. Uh, uh, of our costs. So then only you add those two together, you're up at 75%. You know, that only leaves the other 25% to pay all of your other, I mean, utilities. I'm talking about packaging, utilities, and then leave a few percentage points for your profit. For the owner. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. 
Uh, or we, to put we, in the we, bank we, for the slow season. We seasons. could talk about that too. Is just, I mean, I, I know I get referred to as the owner and I am the principal owner, but I use that term because I actually only own about 90% of the stock. The other 10% is owned by about uh, 15 or 20 other employees. And so that was one of my aspirations when I first uh, got into, when I first got into business, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to do it to create jobs. That was one of my aspirations. The other one was to, uh, you know, create employee ownership, employee participation. That was something that I actually uh, dug into when I was at business school. And it was something that after my couple of years working for Acorn, I went back to Boston and worked for an organization for a couple of years that was a uh, provided technical assistance to employee owned enterprises. And uh, so uh, that's that's what I wanted Is to do. Is it an ESOP? Uh, no, uh, it was not. It, there, there were, it had a model that was a little different from ESOPs. It was uh, looked at ESOPs askance in some regard, but that's a different deal. But it, you don't uh, like it, them. Well, what does the, ESOP the, stand the, for? Employee stock ownership plan. There you go. Thank you. Uh, but well, the, the the employee ownership model that uh, the organization that I worked with uh, looked after was one modeled on the Mondragon. Mondragon cooperatives in the Basque area of Spain, which are pretty uh, pretty remarkable, and whatever uh, that means. I yeah. Well, anyway, uh, northern Spain, uh, but they they have a pretty uh, robust uh, cooperatively employee owned enterprise. Uh, you part, like it? Has it been economy. successful? It has, and it's been around for uh, decades. But uh, anyway, that uh, and I and I thought of doing that with Community Bakery and started off that way, but uh, it was not I, sustainable. I, well, a lot of things. Number one, when I, as soon as I got into community bakery, it, it took almost no time for me to just become overwhelmed with the day-to-day -day operation. That's where all my attention had to go. So my kind of loftier goals or aspirations yeah. to, you know, create employee ownership that they didn't quite, I didn't have the capacity to really focus on that. And you really can't do it with one person anyway. Mm -hmm. You need more of a, more support than that. But, but I did at least lead to me eventually, oh, several years later, starting to issue stock bonuses to my key employees uh, who had been around for a while, made a commitment. Didn't mean they were necessarily, when I say key, didn't necessarily mean they were uh, managers, although of course a certain number of them were, but if they played a key role in the organization and it demonstrated a commitment, then I, I gave them a stock bonus and I uh, and that's how I got up to, you know, 15. We actually had, a, I think, as many as 22 employee owners a, a few a few years ago. It's, it's come down from that a little bit. Because they anyway, sell it back? They sell back their stock and you buy it back? Well, so what, what uh, yeah. Uh, so what happens, What the, the, the way we had it organized, uh, so I'd give them a stock bonus. And then I would say, listen, I've given you this. This is just a bonus. And, you know, we'd run it through payroll. It was on their check like a, like a bonus. Uh, and uh, I said, but you also can buy uh, the equivalent number of shares as I've given you a bonus. But practically no one ever took me up on that. Only only a couple of folks did. I got you. Uh, but yeah, the, 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 when they when we gave them a bonus, they'd have to sign a uh, an agreement that says that if they leave the employment of the bakery for any reason, then they have to sell it back 
to the company. And so uh, that's what would happen. We would, whenever someone would, uh, would, would quit or otherwise terminate, then uh, we'd buy the stock back from them. And, that, and that's when they would actually see the monetary value of the, uh, which is of, almost of, nothing of the stock. Well, I shouldn't say that's not, that's not completely right. Throughout the time that they own the stock, mm-hmm. they would get uh, quarterly distributions of oh, earnings, their, their pro rata share of earnings. At least once we got to the point where we were, basically distributing whatever we whatever profit we earned when we weren't really investing anymore. Since uh, you said 52% of your dollar is spent on labor costs, so 50% yeah. of, of your company is in labor, yeah. you have 65 employees. And I've noticed, and I began to do this because I heard you were doing this. I learned this from you. You probably don't know that about the enterprise zone where you get tax credits. Yeah. Tell tell uh, our listeners what an enterprise zone is and how you get tax credits because this is this is good news. Well, yes and no. So it's, it's empowerment zone. I'm sorry, uh, empowerment yeah, zone. No problem. You said that earlier. Um, so <laughs> what it is is empowerment zone means that if you hire somebody that lives within the empowerment zone that's specified, yeah, that that uh, the government will give you a tax benefit for their salary. Uh, yes. Uh, so there, there are a variety of things that uh, benefit. There are a variety of things you can that the empowerment zone uh, put into place. But one of them is the um, uh, employment credits, and that's what you're referring to. And, and that's all I've made use of. And yes, what the the rule there is that if you have an employee who, if first of all, if you operate your business in the empowerment zone, and that's it's, right. And it's not all of Pulaski County. It's that's very right. very narrow. If your business is in the empowerment zone and your employee lives in the empowerment zone, those two criteria, and as long as they meet some other criteria, they got to work for you for a minimum of three months. And, you know, they can't be a relative. I mean, they can't, yeah, they can't be a family member and Mm -hmm. a few other exclusions, but be that as it may, if they meet those criteria, then uh, you can claim a employment credit. And uh, uh, And it adds up. It adds up. It's very very significant. If you get 65 employees like you do, that can make a big difference. It, it did. It's, it has made a big difference. In the early years when we did it, I, I kind of saw it as uh, just kind of a, a windfall. And uh, we actually gave out extra bonuses to our employees, which we called uh, easy bonuses. Oh, yeah, easy bonuses. <laughs> we, we did that for a number of years. But then when costs caught up with us on other fronts, uh, those easy bonuses kind of just segued into just regular bonuses and mm-hmm. we, uh, you know. Well, I wanted to talk about training because when I come to your place, there's a lot of people on the front counter that are new and I wonder how you handle the turnover and the training. I'm sure in the back, the bakers are more stable, but it seems like the front counter has a lot of turnover and I wanted to talk about training, but we're running out of time and I really want to talk about the solar panels. Okay, I, Everybody's interested in solar panels. I've got prices on solar panels. How did you come to decide well, before you answer this, let me let me jump in here and just tell everybody that, that they're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and that I'm speaking today with Mr. Joe Fox, owner of the Upscale Coffee Shop, and you might say the first community bakery, the first upscale coffee shop, really, and it's community bakery in downtown Little Rock. So let's decide on how you decided to do solar panels. You're an engineer by trade, technology engineer, so I know you did your due diligence on this. 
Okay. So uh, first of all, I, I've had a long interest in solar energy. Before I even bought the bakery, actually, I was interested in solar energy. When I first came to Little Rock, when I was looking around for things to do, I actually worked with a guy. In the 80s? In the early 80s, 81, 82. I worked with a guy named Bill Ball, who's kind of the grandfather of solar in Arkansas. And, uh, you know, I... I've kind of aspired to do something in solar for the longest time. But as I say, I've just uh, the day to day demands of operating oh, yeah. the enterprises I was already in. I couldn't very well do that. And honestly, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to do it if uh, I hadn't uh, brought on a new partner who's really taken a lot of the responsibility off my shoulders for operating the day to day operation of the bakery. And if he hadn't been there, I wouldn't have kind of jumped at this opportunity that came up to uh, to do it when I did it. What opportunity but, was it? Oh, you know, a neighbor put me in touch with uh, somebody who had done solar for her and her house. And she just happened to uh, send the uh, inquiry at the right time. I was out of town and uh, got the email and I was relaxed. And I said, yeah, sure. Have those solar people call me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and they called me and we they came and met with me the next week. But again, as I say, if, if, if John Brandenberger, my new partner, had not been really much running the day-to-day -day operation with our general manager, I, I would have just said, I'm sorry, I don't have time. I don't have time. I, I, I've said that to so many opportunities so many times, just as you referred to earlier, you know, when you get into business, uh, you just start seeing opportunities wherever you look and you just have to decide what you're going to do. But in this particular instance, I guess the stars were aligned and I said, yeah, let's talk about solar. And, and honestly, I just put the deal together. Uh, they came and made me a proposal and I didn't even go out and get a, uh, the, an alternative bid. Oh, I, I can't I just, believe that. I just, I just said, I'm going to do it okay, <laughs> because I, I had actually been for the last several years, I'd been intending to do solar where you could, uh, install it somewhere remote and put a meter in your community bakery name there. And then you could net meter, aggregate, aggregate meter it with your uh, community bakery meter downtown. That was what I was going to do. But so I kept looking around for lots in the neighborhood that I could just buy and maybe put solar on. I, I, yeah, I, I finally figured out that. this is the only way I was going to do it. <laughs> I don't think people realize that you mm -hmm. can put solar panels in a field yep. in the country yep. as long as that field is in the Intergy's. Is it Intergy that has our yeah, Intergy's um, um, service area? Service area. Mm -hmm. yep. So you can put you can put them anywhere. Yep. And then the, the, as the, long as you put the meter at that location in the same name as the one for you, your business or that you mm -hmm. want to aggregate it with, then they'll, they, you they'll can let do you use that. it. So you collect yeah. the energy out there in Scott, yeah. Arkansas, let's yeah. say goes on the grid, goes and on they, the grid, goes you, downtown to energy, energy mm -hmm. will send it out to community bakery mm -hmm. and yeah. you will get to use it. You could even send it to your home. Couldn't you? Yep. You know, because, whichever, whatever you want to uh, aggregate, whichever meters you want to aggregate. You can I do didn't it that realize way. that. Now you can't go out of energy service area. You can't go to Louisiana and be on a different and be on a different, different company. I did not realize that. Yeah, that sounds right. And they actually put a meter in and one meter's running of the power that you're using and one meter's running backwards. That's yeah. the one you're collecting from solar. Isn't and that interesting? That, that's that's what they say now. Actually, are, are these new meters don't actually run oh, backwards. They, they have you a, really uh, but me. that's the old ones did, uh, but th they have a separate readout for what you've put back on the grid. And you don't get to collect it and save it from month to month like some people think. 
Nope. Uh, for, for first of all, our, our so solar, don't our, over put in. Don't don't over don't put in too many panels. We, we don't have any problem with that. We are <laughs> we use we consume so much energy at Community Bakery that uh, our solar panels. We have 102 solar panels are, on our are roof. They, are they on the roof? They're on the roof of that uh, of that main building that people come in and sit down and have their coffee in. Do you think that they're going to You can, you can barely see the edge of them. Oh. And actually, that's by design, uh, partly because uh, we, uh, by installing them on a historic building, and you'll be interested in this okay. because you have a historic building, but more historic than ours, in fact. Uh, but uh, in any event, uh, we were able to uh, claim a historic rehab credit for the cost of that solar installation. And that was another reason that made it very attractive to do it and uh, persuaded me to say, let's just get this done. And I don't have time to to, to spend a lot of uh, energy on trying to uh, look at all other other alternatives and and i uh you know i, I trusted the people uh seal solar are the ones who did seal our, solar seal solar they did our project they did they did a very nice job they're good people to work with and uh, how long will it take uh, you to recoup the money you spent so mm, let's let's say you spent ten thousand uh, yeah, dollars yeah. putting them on the roof okay. how long will it be before you can actually recoup the ten thousand okay, so the payback for our project is in the uh a little over six years mm-hmm. um but you know, it's, it, it should be producing energy for well beyond that. So uh, if you were to finance it, let's say, uh-huh. uh, and so let's say you were financing it at $2,000 a month, instead of paying your uh, energy bill, you would be paying a loan for $2,000 a month. Is that the same? Is that true? You just pay cash up front. So I, I it uh, seems but, but like yeah, that would be true. You could just yeah. swap your utility bill uh, for yeah. a loan. And yeah. then at the end of six years, you would actually have no utility bill and no loan. Uh, that's probably not quite that simple. Uh, the, uh, I bet it is. What about tax credits? What do right. you get? Do you get tax credits back for it? For the solar, yeah. So there's 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 some big benefits there, and uh, so you know the uh, the historic rehab credit was significant. That's twenty five percent. The there's a federal solar energy credit. That's thirty percent. Add those two together. That's fifty five percent right off the front end. Okay. <sighs> And then, loving that. Then, but then also because this is income-producing property, uh, that we can depreciate the investment. So that, of course, uh, reduces our tax bill, and uh, there's some cash flow associated with that. Uh, I love it. Of course, uh, as that as that increases our, our taxable income, there's additional income tax that we have to pay there. So you got to factor all that into the projections. That's the type of thing I enjoy That's what you love. T- tinkering with. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, what I, what I determined was the, uh, the, the steel solar folks eventually first came to me and told me that it was, it was like a 16% uh, internal rate of return. And when I did my own calculations, I determined it was more like 12%, but that's 30 that's years. Typical. That's like 30 years out. And I, since I'm not sure I'm going to be here 30 years from now, I thought I ought to look at what it's going to be 10 years from now and oh, there you 20 go. years. So even after 10 years, uh, there's like a 6% re- internal rate of return. And I said, well, that's, better than I can do with cash in the well, bank, we, so I'll take it. We didn't get to talk about your uh, passing the baton. You'll have to come back and tell me about that. Maybe after <laughs> okay. you, because you said you're going you're to start talking about retirement. But I do have a gift for you. Thank you so much. Look here. Oh. It's a desk set uh, look, with look, flags. Look, look, look at those flags. That's now, fabulous. that's U.S. This you recognize it. I recognize, uh, of course, that's Arkansas. And uh, this one is... One of them is Boston and one of them is Missouri. Oh, is that right? Mm, or uh, Massachusetts. That, that, okay, I was going to say... Massachusetts, not right. Boston. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll recognize Missouri. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, fabulous, Carrie. Thank you so much. That was 
awfully thoughtful you. of you to uh, to put that together. Thanks You're so much. You're welcome. I All hope right. you enjoy it. And lastly, to our listeners, thank you for spending time with us. If you think this program has been about you, you're right, but it's also been for us. Thank you for letting us fulfill our destiny. Our hope today is that you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening, and I definitely have, and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. Thank you, Carrie. You're welcome. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Subscribe to podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream. 